Well, Gabriela, thank you very much for agreeing to have this conversation. I've been wondering how and why you became interested in philosophy. Well, quite by chance, really. When I applied to St Anne's, I was interviewed by Iris Murdoch, unexpectedly so, because I really wanted to read English. But the English entrance exams involved a Latin a paper, a, yeah, a Latin paper, and my Latin was too poor. I couldn't have attempted it. Yeah. So um, instead of applying for English, I applied for modern languages, French and German, because at least my German was good, mm -hmm. my French less so, but still. When I was called for interview, much to my surprise, and indeed shock horror, I was told by Miss Mary Bambury, who was then the college secretary, that I wouldn't be seen by modern language tutors, but by PBE tutors. And this, uh, the idea that I was expected to move away from the arts and take a course which would involve economics, I found quite shocking. So, uh, so um, you know, I didn't think this was a good idea. But then I was interviewed by Iris, and I was enormously impressed by her. I think it was the questions that she asked and the way she interpreted my answer, I, sh I thought showed enormous wisdom. So uh, I thought philosophy, and philosophy as taught by Iris, is a thing to do. So PPE was after all the right course. That's how it started. That's a wonderful, wonderful account. I wonder, Gabrielle, I'm sure that um, your many friends will be very interested to know of those philosophers you've read and of those who've taught you. Which ones influenced you the most? Well, of the ones who taught me, it has to be Iris and her teaching. I very much liked her approach, particularly to moral philosophy, because as against the behaviourist, she emphasised the mental life of the moral agent. So, for instance, she thought, as against Dick Hare, Dick Hare's Language of Morals was a very prominent book at the time, you all read it, and so on. And she thought that he was much too, cr too crude in teaching that only that moral convictions are shown in behaviour. That's the crucial point. And she thought um, that is not the right way of looking at a moral situation. So, for instance, in her book, The Sovereignty of Good, she gives the example of a mother-in-law. She does not, the mother-in-law doesn't like her son's wife. She thinks her crude and vulgar and loud. But then she takes another look, both at herself and as the uh, daughter-in-law, and she thinks of herself that she is probably rather conventional and perhaps prejudiced and quite certainly jealous. And so she begins, her vision begins to shift and she sees her daughter-in-law no longer as vulgar and loud, but rather as spontaneous and gay and just a happy person. 
And this new view may or may not affect her behavior. Iris assumed her behavior has been beautiful throughout, so she thinks it doesn't have, uh, have any effect on her behavior at all. It's just a mental state. So she has achieved something worthwhile for its own sake. There is here no single act of will, but a kind of development uh, and introspection. So. That's most interesting. And did, did, in your experience and knowledge of her, did Iris herself exhibit that capacity? Well, uh, she probably had these capacities, but she, uh, I didn't know her well enough to be able to point mm. to a particular uh, situation. She didn't reveal herself very much. But there's one occasion, I remember one tutorial, when it became, became quite obvious that uh, she wasn't paying any attention to my <laughs> And she finally asked me to stop and said, uh, opened the drawer in her desk and said, look at this. And it was uh, a copy of her first novel, Under the Net. It had just been published and she was so thrilled to have it in her hand that she really couldn't think of anything else. That was a very nice occasion, I must say. She, um, going back to her teaching, she made me understand how very complex philosophical problems were, particularly in moral philosophy. And uh, how many, from how many angles they have to be considered. But she didn't give me many tools with which I could try and find a solution. But then I had tutorials in philosophical logic with Peter Strawson. And I was really very lucky with my tutors. He and Iris more or less complemented each other. Yes. So he provided me with a mechanism for at least starting to find solution to these various problems. Peter was very keen, he was very Kantian, in that he was very keen on so-called transcendental arguments, which very briefly, uh, well, they consist in trying to find conditions which must necessarily obtain in order for us to have certain quite ordinary beliefs, such as that we are surrounded by material objects which are in space and persist through time. And this involves, among other things, an examination of language, of perception, of knowledge, of the self. So it's quite big problems it deals with. It's certainly not a type of argument which is universally accepted. I mean, what is? But I too am rather fond of transcendental arguments. So it's perhaps not surprising that among the great dead philosophers it's Kant himself I, who influenced me most. But I'm also rather fond of the British empiricists and especially David Hume I admire the ease with which he writes, which is a style very different from Kant, it has to be said. Interesting. Why, in your work, have you concentrated so much on vice, especially in your writing, rather than on the commoner topic of virtue? 
Yes, the virtues have been popular again for a while. They weren't really much discussed. But whether you consider the virtues or the vices, they both have the same general framework of virtue theory, mainly Aristotelian type. So that the basic propositions are shared by both, and what you say about the one reflects in some way on the other. Well, only Aristotle thought that only a virtuous life could really be good for the agent himself or herself. Now, this is not a thesis which is easy to prove <laughs> that you're better off if you behave well. And I thought it might be somewhat easier if you turn it upside down and say, well, what uh, are there good reasons for saying better not cause the vices, keep away from the vices? And that is one reason I thought that might be easier to show, at least in some cases, in the traditional vices such as pride and envy. But it's also um, Well, what's <laughs> my thread? Uh, uh, when you talk about um, the, the, the pride, I mean, that also links up with the emotions, of course. And um, pride can be, it's of course the name of an emotion itself, or it's a character trait, and that can be good or bad. But it's also thought to be the deadliest of the deadly sins. Mm -hmm. So you get all the things you mm -hmm. have to disentangle. Mm -hmm. So um, what they have in common, I think, all the various aspects of pride is that they are, and of the other vices I discuss, is that they have to do with the view uh, the agent takes of him or herself. So the self, the question of the self, crops up. And I think it's cropped up in one way or the other, whether I talk about the emotions or the vices or the virtue of integrity. I think the notion of the self and how the person looks at herself has always been one of the main interests, I think, going all the way through. Thank you. That's a fascinating answer. Gabriel, I think when we first came to know each other back in the late 80s, one of the things that became very rapidly apparent to me was that literature mattered enormously for you. Um, I wonder if you could say something about how your knowledge of literature has helped you in developing and formulating philosophical arguments. Well, certainly. Um it, partly, given my interest in the emotions, uh, that I think that the, in, uh, the relevance to ethical deliberation and to the meaning of life, if you like, uh, given my interest in that, I think it's in a way natural to uh, turn to literature for illustrations. There is a very strong philosophical tradition which thinks that emotions have nothing to do with moral reasoning. 
they should be just the passion, the so-called passions should be just dropped, it should be a matter of reason alone. But and then, well, Plato, for instance, thought that the poets deal with the emotions, and you can, of course, respect them and even admire them, but they are far too dangerous to have in the ideal republic, so not the emotions. But, of course, literature presents us with very complex characters in different situations, and one can and illustrate that vulnerability, the various the conflict of commitments that, that might confront them, the effect of moral luck in different situations, and so provide a depth of the illustrations which one self, if one thought of examples, one just couldn't achieve, they would remain quite artificial. So that is certainly one reason why I think um, literature is enormously useful. So, um, so for instance, if you going back to to pride, if you think of uh, an example, this would be Shakespeare's Coriolanus, who was so um, proud that he could not bear to be praised by those that common lot, the Roman citizen. Or again, uh, Milton Satan, who wanted to be governed only by his own autonomous will. Everything else, he thought, uh, you know, was, uh, somebody was manipulating him. And he can be showed up the complexity of pride, the deadly sin, and that's uh, much better than any uh, any example I could concoct would do. And of course, it's uh, literature is so rich. I mean, it's still sticking to pride. You needn't, you can take a go to the Roman world and Coriolanus, but you could also stay with Jane Austen in early 19th century England. With uh, Emma was a proud young woman. So uh, there's so much variety in the illustrations I give you. And again. Um, if you think of, uh, to, you can also think um, of lack of integrity or lack of possession of integrity. For lack of integrity, you might have, say, the hypocrite Tartuffe. But you could also look at George Eliot's Mr. Casabon in Middlemarch who uh, presented himself to himself and to others as a dedicated scholar, but at the same time omitted to do what, as a dedicated scholar, he ought to do, such as learn German, without which he couldn't really get along. So <laughs> there is an enormous richness here. There is, of course, always the danger that I choose the examples because they fit my theory. <laughs> Even the ones which seem to um, apparently contradicted, I then of course try and fit in, and one never quite knows. You know, do I do they fit because I make them fit? And this seems to me to reflect a general worry when one advances a philosophical thesis. 
the individual bits must, of course, be consistent with, with each other. They must cohere, or you haven't got a thesis. But then you worry that they cohere because you've made them cohere. Perhaps your, uh, your premises are not clear enough, or the steps are not spelled out or are ambiguous. I think, uh, well, that seems to me a feature of philosophy, everything can and no doubt will be doubted. And one can only hope that even if, you know, the steps are debatable, that one has achieved enough in trying to answer the problem, that it is of general interest, even if it doesn't have to be generally accepted. Wonderful. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful, wonderfully rich answer. Um, we ought to explore your teaching of philosophy and what gave you, what you most enjoyed about your teaching of philosophy. I imagine there are a number of dimensions to the answer that you might want to give, but I wonder if you could just give some reflections on that question. Yes, there's certainly quite a number of dimensions. I mean, just to see young people year after year, mm -hmm. I think is a great pleasure and indeed privilege. Yes. And, uh, I think we were very lucky with our students. They were always very responsive. On the whole, they worked very hard. So that was one very good thing. And people always think that if you take, teach roughly the same topics year after year, it must get very boring. And I don't think They're this is at all true. Partly because individuals suggest um, different angles to a problem and then one a tutorial goes a different way. Partly because I've taught in both not only PPE but also philosophy psychology, philosophy theology and math and modern languages. So they have they had a variety of backgrounds and depending on the background they usually produce some new angle to a subject because of what other knowledge they had. So that made for more variety, so all that was really very interesting. And of course for oneself, teaching is uh, quite essential and clarifies your mind. I mean, you really have to know what you're saying if you want to, to teach anybody. Well, which reminds me that uh, going back to my very early days of teaching, um, that, that was a tutorial in prelim logic, philosophical logic, because Iris Murdoch didn't like teaching prelim logic. So the moment I had graduated, she made me do it. Quite difficult to teach <laughs> the first year, just when you've never taught before. But the duty was a first-year student from Oil, and I remember explaining to him my theory about the constant knot, which I was very proud of, and I didn't remember what it was. And he sort of listened politely, and then he said, yes, but, and produced a perfectly good counter-example. <laughs> so, I. I tried to collect my wits, and while I was doing so, the ground under his feet gave way, literally, and he and his chair sank. 
det var skledig samtidig han var på plåbos han sagde I thought well this is a, you know just retribution but of course I had to go and rethink my beautiful theory or not but I should never forget that yes bombund <laughs> One of the questions that often arises in discussion is, I find with sixth formers who are thinking about applying to read um, PPE and thinking perhaps about philosophy for the first time is whether philosophers make progress in thinking about philosophical problems. Do you think that philosophy as a discipline has made progress since the days of Socrates? Um, I suppose it depends what you philosophical answer what, what you mean by progress. Um, well, of course, it has changed a great deal because um, scientific, technological, medical, social developments have made a great difference because they raised very many new questions to be dealt with. Socrates never had to worry whether machines can think. Well, has it got any better? Well, again, one wants to know better in what respect, because we get better results, or perhaps more acceptable results, or perhaps philosophical questions are more profound, or perhaps more better specified. Or perhaps the methodology applied is um, more precise. Well, maybe new uh, sort of mathematical approaches will achieve greater precision. I think that's quite possible. But I think, after all, Socrates did pretty well, and he asked a very fundamental question. So, for instance, he asked, um, well, he asked fundamental questions both in epistemology and in moral philosophy. And particularly, he asked, how should we live? Uh, a question to which, at least according to Plato, he thought he could give an answer. Well, yes. And his procedure was perfectly good, too. I mean, he proceeded by investigating um, he asked for proposals to say what is justice and then people would propose an answer and then he would investigate those and point out the shortcomings and they had to start again. So he proceeded by trial and error until they got something together. Seems to me a pretty good way. Rather like a tutorial. Ex exactly. I think that's what he did, yeah. So, of course, all his individual steps and premises are questionable, but then, especially in moral philosophy, this is hardly surprising. I remember, Gabriela, in one of our conversations, I think many years ago now, you once asked the rhetorical question, what do I owe to St. Anne's? What would your answer be? Well, St. Anne's certainly shaped my life from undergraduate days in very unexpected and most interesting and rewarding ways. So my answer would be a very great deal indeed. Well, I think all of those, all those who have been privileged to be your 
your students and your colleagues, so many of whom have become your friends, um, would want to say that you've shaped their lives very profoundly too, as you've certainly shaped mine. So thank you very much for everything that you've done and contributed to the college and to your, the community of philosophers in whichever school in St. Anne's and for all that you've been and all that you are. Well, thank you. Yeah.